Hello, and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast, your source for interviews with people from all across the tropical fish keeping hobby. I'm your host, Randy Reed. Please subscribe and check out all previous episodes on Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, or AquarisPodcast.com. You can also check out additional content by following the Aquarius Podcast Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts. If you like what you hear, please rate and leave a review for the show. Enjoy the interview. Today's date is Wednesday, June 13th, 2018. My guest today is Sarah Bills. Sarah is an experienced Aquarius with success breeding a variety of plecos and also maintains many other species in her care like discus. She shares updates on her breeding progress with others through social media and is the founder of Cascadia Aquatics. Sarah, welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, being willing to jump on and, like I always say, talk to a complete stranger. Um, you know, I, I love talking about fish and in our little um, introductory conversation, you know, you'll, you also like talking about fish, so this is always a, it's always a good match. Definitely. So, Sarah, if you wouldn't mind starting with your uh, origin story, how did you get uh, started in our hobby? And, you know, take us back in the Wayback Machine. Okay, so... <laughs> far away, in a galaxy far, far away. Um, I started, I started, I think it was just over seven or so years ago. I wound up dog sitting for this woman, a friend of mine. And after all was said and done, she tried to give me money. And I said, no, I don't want any money. And she said, well, I have this fish tank. So would you take that instead? And I said, yeah, sure, whatever. And it was a 10 gallon. And obviously, you know, you all grow a 10 gallon in about two, three days. So my husband went and bought a 55 gallon and he decided to do some crazy oddball hodgepodge hodgepodge of species with no like real theme or rhyme or reason and he bought me a garami and i think it was an opaline and so i went and got another one and then another one and i i really like my interest really really grew in for garamis um i joined a few facebook groups and i found thought my agarami was bloated and I posted some pictures of her and uh, the members were like, no, she's actually gravid. So I said, okay, well, you know, let's try this out. So I started breeding garamis and I bred the opalines for a little while. And I found that, you know, they're really, really care intensive. They absorb a lot of your time. It's a really hard species to, to rear. So I got involved in dwarves. And then I started exploring like the more rare species of garami, like the chocolates and the samurai. And I set up a garami specific tank. And uh, then he said he wanted rams. So I set him up a 37 gallon ram tank. And then uh, he, one day he said, you know, I really want to try discus. And I, you know, I always thought that was like the pinnacle fish keeping that, you know, I would never be able to achieve that, that sort of realm of knowledge. So we researched and researched for months and months and months, and then eventually we wound up getting a group of small discus from a local breeder, importer, and they wound up being of awful quality. But, you know, I wound up growing and sticking with the discus, and I, I kept discus for, I guess, five or six years? I Probably about five years. Oh, wow. So you definitely have some, some pretty good experience then with, uh, with discus. Um, to kind of take a step back, I guess, what would be, you know, one or two of the things about the garami that really made them intensive and, you know, kind of, kind of made you uh, look for another species to breed? Um, they're really, uh, they're slow to grow. 
Um, their diets are kind of high maintenance. They're really into like Daphnia and some live cultures and stuff like that. And at that point in my Aquarius career or what have you, I just wasn't really fully equipped or knowledgeable enough to start exploring those kind of avenues. Um, and I, I remember having a lot of die-offs, like mass fry die-offs, but, you know, it was all kind of just a learning experience. And I wound up having like half a dozen successful uh, breeds come out of that, successful spawns. And I'm curious to know, so what is your um, kind of like your tank count progression at this point? So you started with the 10-gallon, um, and then as you started getting heavier into the grommy breeding and then transitioning into discus breeding, like walk me through kind of what your fish room or fish rooms look like at this point. At that point, I was in a townhome, so I just had a tank in every vacant spot in the house. I think at one point I got up to about nine tanks. Um, we always had the 55. I had a 40 gallon Garami. I had a 46 bow front, um, the 37 gallon Ram tank, and then a 120 gallon discus tank. And then I turned that 10 gallon tank into a puffer tank. So I was kind of like exploring all areas of the hobby that I could at, at kind of at one time, but while not while keeping them all together, kind of like isolating them and like trying to really like learn about the actual species and figure out where like what my niche was i love the uh the hodgepodge collection of tanks the various sizes and then you, it's like anytime somebody talks about their hodgepodge collection it's like you almost have to throw in the like the token bow the bow front tank right like i feel like everybody with a hodgepodge collection has the bow front and i hate bow front <laughs> like my least favorite shape of tank so I got, I got rid of that one. Uh, I was gonna, so I have to ask, what, what is it about the bow front then that uh, you're not a fan of? Um, they're just really no, prone to leaking. They're prone to blowing that front seal, all that weight on the front of the tank. Just, it's just nerve-wracking. I, and then I really think they're kind of ugly, honestly. They kind of distort the fish in, in some ways, I guess. Yeah, so I mean, I I think I'm in the same camp as you. Um, I don't know if my my passion runs as deep as yours for the for the dislike of the bow front, but um, it's 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 an odd shape. I mean, and if you're out there listening to this and you have a bow front, don't you know keep rocking your th- keep rocking your tank. You know, do your thing. No offense <laughs> to the bow front people. Sorry, no offense. That would be funny though if there's somebody that are like super passionate about Bowfront and that would be like the divide. Like if there was a, right. like a fish club somewhere where you had like half the half the fish club was Bowfront and the other half weren't and then they ended up splitting up because of something like that. that would... Right, like Bowfront enthusiasts or something like that, like strictly Bowfront keepers. That would be really really interesting. We should we should actually look that up on Facebook right now and see if there's a group for that. <laughs> Bowfront Enthusiast International. <laughs> there you go. Oh, international. I like it. All right, so let's... Give it, give it enough prestige. Yeah, so um, I would think then, so for Discus, um, and people that, that have listened to my episode with uh, with Bentley, where I talked about, you know, Discus was a fish that as I got back into the hobby this time around, I thought that my main showpiece tank was going to be a Discus tank. I ended up going rainbow fish, um, but I still very much want to um, have Discus, maybe not to breed, but uh, knowing what I know of them, it seems like the fact that they kind of have that built-in cichlid um, maternal uh, instincts, the babies feed off the side of the parents when they're really small, so that kind of you know takes a little bit of the labor out of it for you. So um, what's kind of happened with your discus breeding experience? Well, I never really got too far into it because I've had free swimmers, I've had attachments, we call it discus milk, it's just the excess of slime coat 
generation. Um, and, but once they get to where they're free swimming and not attached to the parents, then you become that parent and you're responsible for the upkeep of like baby brine shrimp and blended formulas and fry focused foods and all of that stuff. And here in the Pacific Northwest, we have, especially where I'm at, we have really, really soft water in terms of dissolved solids. So I have to add additives to that water to get discus to actually grow at the normal rate. Um, I think my TDS is probably around like 40. So it's very, very labor intensive and all of that. And on top of that, you're doing 100% water changes every day to keep up with the cleanliness of the tank. The fry have to eat at least five or six times a day. It's just an extremely labor intensive process that it's just, you need to like throw your all at it. And really that has to be your focus. And I just can't give it that. I can't give discus fry that kind of time. I just doesn't, I'm just not interested in it. No, fair enough. And I guess to kind of set, um, to set up your uh, mentality or your approach to the hobby, like clearly you are a, um, a very involved, I mean, I, I would say you're very experienced at this point. Um, there, it seems like there is an element of, you know, breeding fish, enjoying the fish, uh, but also, you know, wanting to wanting the hobby to pay for itself in some capacity, right? Um, is that kind of a true statement to understand, like, where Sarah's coming from in this? I think so, because, you know, my interest continues to grow, but my pocketbook doesn't really continue to grow. Um, it's not really about being a business or making money and profiting. It's just kind of like, at this point, I'm thousands of dollars into it. Can I get some kind of something out of it while like sharing it with other people. No, totally, totally. Yeah. And, and so, you know, having a, a full-time career and then also juggling that aspect, wanting to keep the hobby fun and enjoyable, um, you know, it's, it's completely understandable to make that decision where, you know, I like this fish, um, you know, it's something cool that I was very interested in, but as far as being able to continue to be very involved in this hobby, to breed, to share, um, it, it just wasn't there in the discus. No, no, not at all. Too much. There's too much overhead. So then, uh, as a nice segue, what does le- what does kind of hit that spot for you then, Sarah? I'm, I'm right now. I'm really throwing. I've been really throwing myself into plecos and like trying to learn about them. It's a very easy fish to care for. Um, I have them separated into colonies, which makes it even easier. Uh, and they kind of just spawn without really any effort on my part. So. I've just been kind of doing that and enjoying that. How long have you been doing the plecos? It hasn't. It honestly hasn't been very long. I think I started really, really diving into them in the fall of 2017 is when I got my first colony, and then eventually it grew from there. Okay. And before the show, you did give me a list of the species that you're keeping right now. But what was the what was the first colony that you had? Uh, the first colony that I got was the. Um, L333, which is um, Hypancistris. I bought a group from two different sources, two small groups, and I combined them. They're all F0 wild. Uh, they're collected from the Zingu River, uh, and they are black and white, which most of the L333s collected are usually yellow. These are black, stark black and white. So I decided to work with them first. I heard that they were pretty easy breeders, and that proved to be definitely true oh very cool and that uh so i looked that one up and and common name on that one that's a king tiger is that correct usually people refer to the usually people refer to the l66 as the king tiger which is just another it's a 
most likely it's a color variant of the same species. So they usually don't use king tiger to use for the 333, but you can because it's really an interchangeable species. They're just color morphs of one another, most likely. Interesting. So, so I guess from a common name perspective, I mean, are we are we sticking with um, L333? It looks like on planet catfish, it's still uh, an undescribed species. It, it's just hyp, uh, yes. species. I usually okay. use the L numbers because a lot of this, um, a lot of the hypancistrus and some of the ancestrus that I keep, they don't have, they're not species classified yet. So. Okay, and so, let, so let's dive into this species then, right? So this is the first one. You've got two different um, colonies that you put together, like right off the bat to me, that like just genetic diversity that makes a lot of sense. So kudos to you for doing that and, and probably putting forth some extra money, right, to, to make that investment in your, in your breeding stock. Um, what, are some of the, what are some of the things that you can share about this particular species with the audience? Um, you know, just general good husbandry and then kind of taking it to the next level and getting these things to spawn. Well, they're actually a very incredibly simple pleco. They're meat eaters. They like their temperature very warm in the low to mid-80s. Um, they don't really require much water movement. I don't. I just have a sponge filter in there. They're in a house in a 40 breeder, which I keep around 84, 85, with a TDS around 40. Um, I gave them all. All of the males have their own caves because they're cave spawners. And um, I kind of just let them do their thing. So they spawn probably once every 10, 10 days to two weeks. And I uh, allow the male to hang out and fan the, fan the eggs for a little while. And then I steal the eggs and then I kind of rear them in all these little contraptions in my 40 breeder. So. Okay, to go back, so they're at about 85 degrees right now? Yeah, about between 83 and 85. Okay. We try to keep it around 84, yeah. Okay, and then I, I know I'm jumping ahead right now, but when you do eventually let these fish go to other collectors, um, I, I, I don't think most people keep their community tanks or tanks in general at that high of a temperature. Do you acclimate them down, or do you just find that in general they will, they, they'll do well at like a, a 79 or an 80? They have a large temp range, um, so it's about 70, I think it's 78 to 87-ish. Okay. Okay. And, and then the 85, you're just finding a little bit hotter is going to be better as far as triggering that, that breeding. Yeah. And I like to keep it kind of in the middle. So if they're going all the way up to 87, so I kind of keep them at like 83, 84. And on another person that I know that breeds Pleco's also keeps his at 84. So I'm kind of just following his, his lead in that sense. Yeah, very cool. And then, um, so I'm, I'm very curious to know as far as heating, um, are you, are you in a, are you still in the townhouse or do you have a dedicated fish room for your operation? Well, that's a really funny story because I, I own a house now, but, um, so we, it's a three bedroom and my husband claims one of the bedrooms as his man cave game room, whatever you have it. And I said, can you please convert the garage into like a livable space so I can have an actual fish room? And he said, no, you know, I, why do you need a fish room? You really need all those tanks. And I said, well, you know, you guys each have your own rooms and your own space. I'd really like my own space to do my thing. And he said, you do have your own room. It's the kitchen. And I said, okay, great. So now my fish room is in the kitchen, and I have racks in, in the dining room, and my distance tanks in the dining room, and I have tanks on the kitchen counter. So I really don't have a dedicated fish room other than the dining room that I kind of claimed as my personal fish room with that, rack. 
That that is awesome. And uh, and so uh, to digress a little farther off of our L three 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 discussion, um, so you, you are kind of in that minority, right? Where uh, of the couple, um, the 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 wife or the the female, the girlfriend is the one that's the fish addict, right? And so in general, I mean, how does your husband view your uh, your obsession? He thinks it's cool as long as it's not you know, invasive. He doesn't really, he doesn't really care. He takes care of them when I have to, when I'm not around to, and he's interested in them, especially when they breed. I guess that's, that's kind of a typical thing to be interested in. So he thinks it's really, he, he's, he's totally okay with it. Oh, awesome. And I, I know a lot of guys, including myself, um, with my now wife, you know, I, I set up, you know, her tank back when we were dating and it was a, a fancy goldfish 55 gallon to, you know, it was basically, hey, whatever you want, you want that turquoise sand, you want fake white coral in there and you want these really cool goldfish just all in the effort to get them to enjoy the hobby. Um, have you set up any <laughs> tank like that for him? Well, I said, like I said earlier, I set up the ram tank. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> The discus were his idea, and the 55-gallon was his tank. It had, like, angels in it and loaches and a bunch of nonsense. But oh, very cool. He kind of fell out of love with the hobby, but he tolerates it for sure. <laughs> awesome. And you know what? You've got the benefit of the saying, happy wife, happy life. Sure. Yeah. I just have a happy husband is just, I guess, disgruntled wife, and we just continue on at times. <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, that's what he's not that interested in it because I, I can see the, how this would get completely out of control. So. Yeah. Oh, if you, but yeah, if you didn't have the counterbalance in the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, one of the, you know, earlier episodes of talking with Greg Steves and, you know, he's a huge cichlid fanatic. And I believe, uh, if I remember right, it was his, his now wife is the one that, you know, really pushed him into it. They met at a fish convention and she, she really pushed him into it. And so it's so dangerous having both of them, being addicted into the hobby like there's probably not an empty space in their house where there isn't a fish tank exactly and i could just see like piles of money being poured into this just for the sheer enjoyment of keeping certain species so i, I totally get it but it would be so epic, i'm kind of glad that he's like my balance i guess <laughs> it, w- it would be epic uh, so, so to, to bring it back on course uh for everyone so uh l333 um <laughs> let let, let's talk. So you're. Uh, I want to go back to uh, the caves. Like, what kind of caves are you using for the uh, for the fish? Um, I have a bunch of different caves. Um, the L three 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 are in just regular ceramics D shaped caves. Um, I've had Kevin Keith from K and M Caves. He's made me custom caves for some of the other colonies. So it just depends on like their size. So that size of cave fits these that species really well. And then I had Kevin make me like custom caves for some of the kind of smaller species that may not have like readily available caves that are already prefab. So do you find cave size more important than like cave style, I guess? Um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it depends on the species. Honestly, I find that the, like the L134, they prefer my slate caves over my ceramic caves. And for the L333, I've honestly found that they will only breed in one type of, one shape of the ceramic cave. They don't breed in the other ones. And maybe it has to do with how, how large they are or small they are. But the male has to be able to trap the female in the cave. So if she can get away, the breed, the spawn won't be successful. Oh, very interesting. 
And then, so now that we've talked about the cave portion, so um, you said that you let the male, uh, you know, kind of rear up the fry. What, what, is that, uh, what does that time period look like and when and what do you do? Um, I, I believe you said, or if you haven't said, you will then pull the fry, right? I do, yeah. And, and typically... Um, if how, I cut, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, which is, how long was that period? Uh, if I catch the spawn, like right as it's happening, I usually find them and they're trapped. It's what we call trapping. And uh, as soon as those eggs are laid, I give it about four, four to five days. I found that certain, a couple of my males at the five-day mark will either just kick them and then they're at the mercy of all the adults. Uh, one of my males has eaten them before because, you know, they're not really leaving the cave very often to eat, so I'm, I'm sure they're hungry. Or maybe the spawn wasn't viable. I'm not sure why he ate it. So I just pull it, and I put it in a tumbler or a breeding ring, and I kind of just keep it myself. Plus, catching pleco fry in any size tank is just absolutely awful. So I'd rather just have them in a very enclosed, Space. Yeah, I can imagine. And so then, once you uh, once you pull them after four or five days, um, how many total days before you start getting the uh, the wigglers and and uh, the eggs hatching? <clears throat> they usually hatch around the four or five day mark. That's what I've kind of been finding. Um, I've I've only observed an active hatch once uh, in my egg tumbler, which was really cool. And then there, this species actually feeds on their yolk sacs for a very long time. It's about usually about ten days, sometimes longer. And then after that, I started introducing the powdered fry foods and that kind of thing. Oh, very cool. And so as far as uh, powdered fry foods, are, are we talking golden pearls or what are we, um, what's your go-to? Um, uh, I get a fry food from Gold Coast Aquatics that they import from Germany, which has been formulated for plecos. It's called Ebo Aquaristic, and it's just a, a really, I feed it to all, all of the plecos, different formulas. And the fry powder is actually like super great. It's not cloudy. It's very clean, and, and they eat it readily, like right after they're off their yolk sacs. So I feed them that for at least a week. Oh, very cool. You know, why don't we go ahead and uh, we'll make sure I get that in the show notes, so people that are interested in breeding, um, uh, I would assume this is going to be for kind of the more meat eating pleco. This particular fry for food. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So we'll make sure that we just have a link to to that, or maybe just that company in general. So if somebody's interested in some really high quality pleco food for their fry, uh, we could point them in that direction. Great. And then, so then, walk me through kind of the the rest of it. I mean, what, so we've got the we've got the fry. We're we're giving them the powder, and I guess how long before they're ready to to go to another hobbyist to enjoy? Um, and what is I, I guess the food and, and kind of care progression, other than I, I would assume just kind of your your standard water changes or anything special. Well, they're really they're in the tank with the adults. They're just they're just in their own little breeding boxes and breeding rings and all of those little strange contraptions that are inside of the tank so they just keep, I just keep up with the regular water changes on the adults which is one to two a week um plecos are notoriously slow growers so um it can take up to three or four months for a spawn to be ready to move on to the next hobbyist depending on what that hobbyist wants if they're okay with rearing some pleco fry they might be all right to go over in like two and a half to three months but they're not even an inch at the three month mark so Oh, very cool. So, yeah, so at this point, I mean, you, you know, the way that you've described just this one particular species of pleco, um, it, it really does sound like it's a fish that, um, you know, as far as breeding goes, you know, short of a live bear, it sounds like it's, you know, the most labor-intensive part is just being really Johnny on the spot with knowing when the eggs are, are you know, the, um, 
the the spawn happens and you're able to pull the eggs in time, right? But yeah, that's pretty much it. Just awesome. Going from the male and then feed them when you would feed the adult. So just normal fish keeping. Yeah, very cool. And the and the output. I mean, these are these are really cool looking fish too. I mean. Yeah, I mean, the the L333s, I mean, that is a really, really cool-looking Pleco. Yeah, a lot of people are really, really into them. Um, they're very, very much line-bred in places like Europe and Asia. So I'm kind of seeing, like, a lot of interest in the fry, definitely. Oh, very cool. So then let's talk about your other species, then. Um so I've got the list here, and let me know if I if I happen to have left one off. So we already talked about the uh, L333. You've got uh, the L134, which is the leopard frog or imperial tiger pleco. You've got the L260, the queen arabesque, and the L183, the starlight bristlenose catfish. Yep, and then I have one more uh, unidentified ancestress that I'm not really sure what it is, but I have that as well. It's oh, cool. another bristlenose. Oh, very cool. Do you have any uh, ideas or theories on what it may be? Um, I, I'm not. I know where it was collected, and I've asked a few of the exporters from South America what they thought it was. And I'm probably going to butcher this name, but it's Ancestress Peminiki, Peminki, something <laughs> along those lines. But it doesn't have an L number. Gotcha. I just they think it, they think it just might be a like a color variant of that that's dependent upon the collection point so oh, interesting and this, that's the world of plecos just misidentification and species that are the same but they differ because of collection points and it just it gets very convoluted and confusing really quickly so i just refer to them as the ancestress that's yeah. all i got <laughs> gotcha. and, so, and so i have to ask i mean can you divulge i mean how, how do these come into your possession then kind of an unidentified um, ancestress they came in through an importer and I wound up buying them from him. So most of my all most of my fish, if not all, have come from an importer that imports directly from South America. I almost the vast majority of my fish are wild caught. So they usually go from one sort the source to the importer and then to me. So then, uh, given that these are wild caught fish, what is your um, quarantine uh, kind of regimen uh, for these guys? Well. All of my all of my plastic colonies go into their own tank in isolation. So obviously, I keep the equipment separate. I usually hit them with a round of praziquantel to rid them of flukes or anything, tapeworms, that kind of thing. Um, sometimes I'll hit them with a round of canamycin. Most of the time, it's just a a very very observant period for the first six to eight weeks. Gotcha. And so it, I, I guess to try to understand, you're getting these fish from the importer. Um, so if, if I was your importer, does it kind of go, hey, Sarah, I've got uh, two more L333s. They're really healthy. Um, do you want these to, and I guess, would you then add them to your existing colony after like that six to eight week period and you've hit them with meds? Or are you getting, hey, I've got this whole new L that you don't have and I've got 10 of them. Are those what you're bringing in or is it a mix? Well, with the, I'm not. I'm not really adding to the colonies. I bought them all at once, except for the L, the three, three, threes, three, thirty threes. I bought them, and like I said, they were separated, and I kept them separated for a while, and then I eventually put them together. But like the L one thirty four and the L two sixty, those colonies came from the same importer bought at the same time. So I just put them into their own 
setups and kept it that way. Okay, and so so you want to you, you play it more safe and conservative that you wouldn't introduce um, new new plecos even of the same species into your species only tank. Most likely not, because especially once I have them on like a good rhythm and I know that they're healthy, it's just I just don't want to throw a monkey wrench into things. When I know that there's an ans- there's a pleco that I I want to keep and I want to breed, I just buy the whole kit and caboodle at once. I'll buy a trio or a, gr- a nice group of adults or something. I don't really do onesie twosies because I just feel like that's just inviting disaster. Yeah, no, I mean, totally with, with what kind of the operation that you have going on, and especially if I had, if they were breeding like, like clockwork on a somewhat regular schedule, I, I wouldn't even want to look at them the wrong way. Like I wouldn't even want to insult them for fear of, you know, the colony <laughs> crashing or, or some, some tragic accident happening. So of, of your plecos, um, can you pick a favorite child amongst the, uh, the plecos that you care? I think it changes. It depends on like what they're acting like and what they're looking like at the time. Like every once in a while, I'm like, wow, these leopard frogs are like the coolest plecos on earth. But like right now I'm really into the starlight because they, they hid for so long. And like, I'm finally getting to see them come out of like their shells, so to say. And I'm getting to like see them more and more often. I'm like really digging those, the L183. They're super, super interesting, kind of finicky. And I kind of like that about them. They're a little bit challenging for a bristle nose. So so of your of your L's, I mean, we're t- obviously we've we've talked about the L three three three. Is there anything um, unique that you know, kind of as a hobbyist, that you have discovered along the way with these other three or four pleco um, species in, in terms of breeding them? Like any kind of aha discoveries or just any tough lessons learned? Um, not really with the plecos. Um, I mean, I've had I've had fry loss, but I, I you know you expect that when you're especially when you're breeding a species that you have never bred before but i mean i usually like i have a really good circle of friends and i kind of bounce ideas off of and they kind of guide me along the way i'm, I'm very much winging it at this point especially when it comes to the pluckos kind of just following planet catfish and the people in various facebook groups and just kind of playing it by ear Oh, awesome. So I, I guess I would have to ask, I mean, you're kind of at, I mean, we're both in the Pacific Northwest, but you're, you're a bit a ways from Seattle. So I'd say it'd be awesome to see you at the uh, Greater Seattle Aquarium Society. But do you have a local club out by you? Um, we started to try to kind of create one. We're like in the very, very infant phases of that called the North Sound Aquatic Society. And uh, just because I, I'm, I am a member of the greater Seattle, but I just can't make the meetings. I can't drive there on a Tuesday night. It's just too far. So we've, we've started to create somewhat local group of um, Aquarius, but we haven't really gotten much further past that. We don't, we're not an organized club or anything. No, I mean, that's, that's awesome that, uh, that, you know, you're, you're getting some people together. And I, I think, uh, you know, especially if it takes off in, in just to be able to say that you're one of kind of like the founding members of that, that seems like a really, um, a, a really fun kind of journey to go on. And at the very least, it's just a bunch of fish nerds getting together for a while talking about fish, right? And yeah, just absolutely nerding out. Totally. <laughs> I'm sure your husband's like, drag me along to that. I would love to join. No, never, never. <laughs> Oh, good times. So, um, awesome. Great, great conversation about some plecos. Um, I do want to talk about um, discus, going back to that, not breeding, but um, kind of your experience with the um, 
Limebred Domestic versus Wild Discus? Well, um, like most discus keepers, uh, I started out with domestics and I kept them for a really long time. Um, I really got to know the importers and here I got to know, <coughs> excuse me, I got to know the breeders here and then I started to get to know the exporters and, and breeders in Asia. And I, I really like went for the highest quality that I could find and I kept them for like a very, very long time. And, you know, eventually I kind of just fell out of love with it. I kept them for five or six years and successfully. Um, but, you know, you, you're told as, as a fish keeper, you know, discus are, are so hard. They're so difficult. So then I got the domestics and I'm like, well, you know, these really aren't that difficult. And then uh, as a discus keeper, you're always told wilds. Wilds are so hard to keep. They're just really finicky and they, they just get sick and die at the drop of a dime. I said, well, all right, let me, let me try wild. Let me take it to the next step. And now I'm finding that the wilds really aren't, really aren't that hard either. Let's talk for a moment about that big dog bark. What is that? What kind of dog is that? It's a great thing. Oh my goodness, that's awesome. Let's let's completely digress. We're gonna come back and talk about discus. Let's let's talk about well, your dogs. I'm, now you've got her talking, so. Oh my goodness. So you have a you have, you've got a girl great dane. What else do you have? And then I have two French bulldogs. So it's like this very large and, and stupid great dane and then these two very mischievous little French bulldogs that kinda of just run around like loaves of bread on legs. French Frenchies oh. have so much attitude to them, like they. It's, oh, they're they're very very bulldogs. Like it's especially crazy. The male. They're yeah. such a bully. Yeah, I have uh, I've got an 11 year old uh, half boxer, uh, half pit, more than likely mix, and then I have a uh, eight year old pug. So I'm definitely a, a dog lover as well. And where I work, it's dog friendly, and I get to say hi to all sorts of awesome dogs every single day. And I've always got treats at my desk. So. So let, let's go back to um, so your experience keeping discus uh, wild caught. So so your experience with wild is that they did you find them to be hardier or just as hardy as the the domestic the the line the the line breads? I think that with the wilds, once you get them like kind of fine tuned, and it's like complete smooth sailing. Uh, I got the wilds and the importer which I don't expect them to, but the importer didn't worm them or didn't treat them for anything. And they wound up getting really sick about a month or two after I was keeping them. And, uh, you know, I, I just reacted like I would have if I had domestics and I threw meds at them and they didn't respond. And a friend came over with his microscope and we literally put a fecal sample under the microscope and found a worm that I had never experienced in domestics, which is capillaria. So, but at, once once I got that that taken care of and that issue treated, it's been simple ever since. With the domestics, I found that they come really healthy, and in a lot of cases, they kind of deteriorate in your care. They stop eating, or they don't really look as great as they looked when they were at the importer or the breeder. And I just find the, I kind of find the wild to be a little bit more hardy once you get them healthy and, and thought you figure out like all the idiosyncrasies that come with them interesting yeah i mean it, that just kind of sounds like the, the the good husbandry the good animal care of of any imported wild fish right you just want to make sure that you give them that proper quarantine time that you hit them with the appropriate meds uh, you're very observant and then you know at that point you it's it's you can then it kind of put them into a into their forever home if you will 
Um, as far as the tank for the discus, now I've watched some videos where some people advocate for a very sterile environment in that, you know, at bare bottom or very minimal layers of sand, um, you know, very, very minimal amount of plants and, and, and other things that can build up detritus. Uh, was that your experience as well? Or like, what did you do as far as plant and, and or uh, tank setup? For my wilds, um, well, you've seen on probably on Instagram, my wild tank is a complete mess. It's, I've got pods and stems and leaves and all types of things going on in my wild tank. And I haven't found that made any difference. Um, I'm changing less water than I do with domestics. And I kind of think all that stuff is kind of maybe more so geared towards domestic husbandry. Um, I kind of kept my tank pretty barren when I had domestics. It was just some very thin layer of substrate, some sand, and a couple pieces of driftwood, and that was it. But with the wilds, I find that they're much more flexible, for lack of a better word, and they don't require nearly as much special care as the domestics did. Oh, very cool. And so, um, so your, your wilds that you have right now, you said, uh, you know, your, your water changes. I mean, what does the water change regimen look like on that? Well, with the domestics, I was doing between two and three every week, large, at least like 60, 75%. With the domestics, I do one at the most and I do, do like about 50 to 60%. And so I'm like happy with the maintenance level for sure. Yeah, and there's some, you know, and and the rainbow fish experts would also advocate that for that particular fish, you know, they love big water changes, so big weekly um, water changes to make them really happy. So, you know, if you can keep rainbow fish successfully and you're and you're doing that, then um, it sounds like the domestic discus isn't that far out of the realm of possibility. Um, and, and I think with the disc, it's like, I, I really do have like the, the line bread ones, all the different varieties that they, that they've been able to create or really enhance. I mean, those are super, super cool fish, but I think kind of lately I have I've had more of an appreciation for just the wild. Right. And, um, if we want to go, you know, take it a step further, um, you know, supporting the project, like things like project Piaba, where when you are getting these wild caught fish, you're supporting the local communities that are in these environmentally sensitive, economically sensitive areas that, um, you know, those, those, the, the dollars that you would have spent going to a line breeder, um, now it's able to go to basically the source of where these fish live to ensure that those fish collectors still have a viable, um, way of living and they don't have to, you know, turn to something that's much more destructive to that, you know, very, very precious ecosystem we have down there. And honestly, like if you, it's very cyclical in the, in most hobbies. Um, and I'm seeing it right now in the discus hobby, they've got, they got so far away from the wild discus and all the strains and all the crazy colors and all that stuff. And now we're beginning to see where breeders are bringing wild back into their breeding programs. And we're getting a lot of wild crosses and there's a lot of interest in those. So I, I'm seeing kind of like the interest shift back to wild. But again, people are kind of hung up on the, Oh, wilds are so much more difficult. So, you know, they, they think they're a little bit safer with the wild crosses, but I'm definitely seeing a trend shift to more interest in wild. So, Definitely. so it sounds like in addition to the Bowfront interest group, we also need an interest group for 
uh, wild discus, right, and to uh, to dispel some of these uh, misconceptions or um, some of the you know some of the information that's floating around out there. And you can, with your firsthand knowledge, you know, dispel those things and and tell people to uh, to give the wild discus a try. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and take it a step uh, further and say, all right, Sarah. Um, I want you to give me kind of the ideal setup, and obviously not not too much over the top, but what would be um, a good tank size for um, some wild discus, throw out some, you know, filtration recommendations, um, just kind of take us through what you would think if if myself or somebody um, wanting to get into wild discus, like what what, what would be a good um, number of wild discus to get and, and kind of the, the details around that? Sure. Well, they are they're cichlids that prefer to be in a school. So you need to keep a minimum at five, but I would really say six. So now we're looking at about a 60 to 75 gallon tank would be the minimum. So for a good group of wilds. And then uh, obviously, like with anything, your preferable filtration is going to be a sump if you can do it. And if not, then I guess the canister is fine. Um, you're going to be doing water, large water changes. So, you know, your, your filter is probably going to be on the clean side. Uh, you like your TF to be pretty low. Um, I wouldn't, I would say like no more than a hundred and your pH, you can get it. And for that, I'd probably say no higher than seven without like proper acclimation, like careful acclimation. So, uh, Sorry, I'm totally thrown off. By no, no, it's a screaming great thing. <laughs> it's, uh, it's adding to the background. I like for, it. Temperature for wilds is actually usually lower than domestic. Uh, I find that the wilds like it around like 82, whereas my domestics liked it around 84. So, um, and they're a lot more deliberate than domestics are. They're they use their energy like you would think a wild fish would use it. They use it to find food and to forage, whereas domestic just, just kind of float around and re- look really pretty. So I'd say they prefer a taller tank. So like a 75-gallon or a 90 is good. I have a 120 tall. So I, I, I kind of like them, and I've always liked the discus in that setup. And don't give them anywhere to hide because the more places you give them to hide, they're, the more often they're going to hide from you. Oh, very cool. So yeah, it's kind of like opposite of a of a tetra, right? Where when you give a tetra more places to hide, it's like you'll see it more. But the discus, if you give them more places to hide, they'll just legitimately hide. Yeah, they'll hide all the time. All right. So uh, to to kind of wrap this up, Sarah, I'm I'm very grateful for your time. Um, so what if somebody said, you know what? Like uh, listening to Sarah. She sounds awesome. Um, those L333s, like, I would love to get some from her. Like, uh, how would somebody go about uh, potentially contacting you? Um, and, and what does that look like as far as how you get your, the fish out there? Well, they can obviously contact me on the business page, which is, which is Cascadia Aquatics, or they can just contact me on Facebook, which is perfectly fine. Uh, you know, shipping is available. Obviously, local pickup is available. And, you know, we just go from there. I mean, I, I'm i really excited to share my, the things that I like about the hobby with other people. So if anybody's interested in obtaining any of the plethos, you know, don't hesitate to reach out. I'm pretty readily available. 
you know what we may have to uh there may be a time you know in the near future after this uh, so i'm i'm over on the uh, the east side of seattle um i may have to figure out how i can get some some plecos from you um and actually before so before we can digress off that i want to talk about your business page um your your logo like i'm a sucker for swag i'm a sucker for logos uh where did this come from like this is really cool to kind of describe it it's a it's like an upside down uh pyramid with um you know a a pleco kind of up at the top geometric shapes it, I, I would guess kind of mount rainier maybe and then some some trees so um, very much like Pacific Northwest, yet there's some kind of geometry and some sharp angles in there. So kind of walk me through your logo. Well, I obviously, I kind of knew a general idea of what I wanted because of the name. And I knew I wanted to portray the, the, what's the word I'm looking for, the natural aspect of the Pacific Northwest, of the mountain crag and the pine trees, the evergreens was an absolute must. We had to figure out how to incorporate a fish into that. But all I did was come up with the idea, and then a friend, Nick Hansen, he drew it for me. So I kind of just had this, like, random little sketch for a couple months, and then my friend Christina from Gold Coast Aquatics uh, took it and digitalized, digitized it for me, put it into a digital format. So that's kind of, and she kind of embellished on it and had, like, the cute little arrows and the font and all that stuff. So that's, it was really a very... <laughs> large group collective that came up with the logo with me putting in very minimal effort no that's awesome i think that's a mark of like you know you're you're legit or at least you want to be legit when you when you go and not that you're not i think you're legit uh but when you have a logo <laughs> right like when you've gone through that much effort and that much thought into your logo like that's really really cool so um i definitely appreciate you know the 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 logo and the branding aspect there um have you slapped that logo on any t-shirts yet no, I did my discus group on T-shirts, and I did merchandising for them, and that was kind of, like, great to get that experience. I haven't really done anything in terms of that with Cascadia because we're just – I'm just not that well-known yet. I just don't want to get stuck with a surplus of merchandise. But I think that I'll probably start small in the realm of, like, stickers and stuff like that, simple stuff, and then we'll see how far we can take it in terms of merchandising. All right, well, I, I'm, I'm going to go on record right now. Everybody's going to hear this. This is a global podcast, right? So people in England and <laughs> Australia, they're going to hear me go on the record. Uh, when you get the stickers, I want to give you cash for your sticker and help you out. And I want to awesome. encourage you to do t-shirts. So I want, but you have to do 50-50 blend though. Like that's really important. You have to do half cotton, half polyester. I want a Cascadia Aquatics t-shirt. I did, when I did the discus, t-shirts i had to have a cotton poly blend there was just no other way if it's if it's 100 percent cotton i'm just going to use it as a rag exactly or it just sits in a drawer it's, it's an aquascaping rag right you got to wipe your arm off on something when you're uh fiddling around in your tank <laughs> i mean that's okay too <laughs> So, Sarah, thank you very much for uh, joining me tonight on the Aquarius podcast. Um, this has been a really, really fun and um, insightful conversation with you. I'm glad to finally have somebody on to talk about discus. Uh, the discus is actually in my logo for the podcast. And, you know, I've gone this long without having somebody actually talk about discus. So um, it, it feels good. It feels like I can check that box and say, yep, talked about discus. Excellent. And it was, uh, it was good stuff. So, Sarah, thank you very much for joining me tonight again for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again for listening to the Aquarius podcast. As always, get involved in your local fish club, help grow this wonderful hobby, and have fun with other fish nerds.